same ideas to the Sumerians. They were the same people. And this makes the city of Akkad became the Akkadians, they defeat the Sumerians, and they form an empire called the Assyrians. The Assyrians were insanely powerful for a very long period of time. Only, back, uh, only the Babylonians defeated them in time. So these city-states that he founded, they began to have conflict with one another. So they all wanted to be the man, right? They all wanted to be in charge. And so they began to battle with one another, but the Assyrians became the most dominant. It was only because the Assyrians were defeated by the Lord that the Babylonians were ever actually able to have power. What happens, and I'll give you a jump way ahead, but the Assyrians come down and they take northern Israel. The south is still loyal to the Lord, the north is not. So the Assyrians hold northern Israel, but the king of Assyria, Shennacherib, decides that he doesn't, he's not happy with it. He wants to go down and invade the south. And so he goes down and tries to invade Judah. Goes down and tries to invade the south. It's loyal to the Lord, right? There's a king on the throne. There's a Hezekiah on the throne. He goes down, makes all these threats. Hezekiah takes the threats that are being presented. A very wise move. He's being threatened by all of these things. So this powerful Syrian king says, "Every god that he has faced, because he was declaring the Lord to him, and he says, who is the Lord?' That's the worst thing a king could ever do. Is say, who is the Lord?'" Pharaoh said, who was the Lord? Didn't go well for him. Sennacherib goes, who was the Lord? It didn't go well for him. So you really want to know who the Lord is? You want to know who I am? Let me show you who I am. So Sennacherib goes, who is the Lord? Every God we have faced, we have destroyed. Every city we have faced, we have destroyed. Come and surrender to me. And, every, and we'll make you captives and all this stuff. Hezekiah takes the threat and the letter into the temple. And he lays it before the Lord and he begins to pray over it. And he offers it to the Lord. And the Lord uses Isaiah the prophet, and the prophet Isaiah comes to him and tells him, don't worry about it, this army is going to be wiped out. And 150,000 of his men were killed in the night. So they all like were wiped out, and so what happened was the Assyrian army limped back to Assyria, and they were never able to, to, to uh, mount an invasion of the south again. In fact, their military was so weakened that the Babylonians began to rise and ultimately conquered them. He went too far, basically. They didn't want to surrender to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were very wealthy people. Good if you were a captive with the Assyrians, they would cut off your ear, cut off your nose. The Assyrians would mark you. They would scar you on purpose in order to put fear to everyone else around them. That if you come, if we are dominant, they would cut you the people with their ears cut off or the front of their nose cut off. They would also take a, uh, they would also put a chain in your jaw and they would look you between here. So when they would beat you away captive, your ring, the ring would be here. So you'd be led away like that. Not nice people. They were still around in some form when Alexander came to power. You guys love history here. And when Alexander came into power in some form, he, he came to power after the Babylonians, so I'm getting a whole way forward in history. Now, Alexander came forth in power, he still saw remnants of the Assyrians and how brutal they were. And Alexander took his own money, his own wealth, and he established colonies for those who had been wounded by the Assyrians. Because they didn't have ears, they didn't have noses. Most of them, they cut limbs off of them, they put your eye out. Particularly men of war, they would put out your eye so that you couldn't shoot or you couldn't look beyond the shield. They would take the men that were military age and they would put their eyes. So there's all these named people. And Alexander said, I'm going to create cities for you. And if you want, you can go and live there. They were wicked people. They weren't nice. And Naaman is about to get grace. Naaman is about to get healed. God is going to show grace to a person who completely doesn't deserve it. So if you don't think he's good, and you think he holds stuff against people, Naaman is about as far out there as he can be. 
false gods and part of wicked and not living to the Syrian general, which means that he probably oversaw a lot of this. In fact, when they took the northern city, they actually, the Assyrians impaled them. They were the, they were the authors of some of the forerunners of crucifixion. The Romans, the Romans perfected it. They hung you on a cross, but the, the Assyrians weren't that nice. They put long spears in the ground, and they just stick you on the top of it, and you'd slide down it until you die. And it would impale you everywhere. The city of Lachesh in northern Israel, they, they impaled almost the whole city. Right around it, right in front of it, they burned the city to the ground, they left everybody on stakes. And you've got to realize, Naaman is a general. So what is he doing? He's overseeing this. Right? It wasn't beyond his knowledge, the wickedness that the Assyrians did. He was a participant. He was the one making the orders. Yeah, crucify those hundred, impale those hundred, cut the noses off of these, cut the ears off of those, take all these kids, sell them to slaves. He's the guy doing this. Okay? He's a high-ranking general. The Assyrians were allowed by God, or God because Israel had moved out from under their covering and came under oppression. Next slide. God didn't do anything to them. All you got to do is move out from under the covering of the Lord. The Lord is a covering. He's a, he's a, he's a, 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 a cloud of blessing. He doesn't do anything to us. We move away from him. Second Kings tells us why they did it. It's that they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. What did they do that allowed this stuff to come on them? Where, how far did they drift? They sacrificed their own children as offerings. They used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked him. They began calling on demons and became spiritists and all these other things. Instead of following the Holy Spirit who was near prior to them, they began to follow other things. False religions, including humanism, always leads to bondage. America's religion is humanism. Let's just be clear. We don't bow down to idols. We don't burn incense. Some parts, some people maybe. But America, for the most part, we're not even atheists. We're humanists. We believe in the almighty power of self. We believe in the almighty power of the intellect. And we subject everything to the power of self. And we subject everything to the power of the intellect. Well, self and identity is good, and the intellect is good. But it's not to be God. Self and identity is submitted unto him. Intellect is submitted unto him. And so we take something that is good and we establish it as worship. Americans, we think that we, we think we're, Western culture in general, Western Europe and everything, we think we're too superior. We look down on all these cultures that worship. You know? We look at our nation looks down on Christianity. They think Christianity is a bunch of idiots. We're, we're the intellectuals. We're the superior ones. You guys can't be that smart, but what you worship. Look what you do. You follow all these things, these crazy things. Look, the intellect is superior. We worship at the altar of self. Self always leads to bondage. We're the most depressed country in the world. We are more medicated than any nation on the planet. Do you realize that? Right. The depression levels in this country are off the chart. Off the chart. Why? Because we worship ourselves. And bondage, there's nothing in you that is deserving to be called God. In me that is my flesh, there dwells no good thing. You don't have the answers. I'm going to look inside myself and find the answers. Well, good luck. <laughs> the psalmist says, I'll lift my eyes to the hill. From there comes my help. From the high place of the Lord comes my help. We are created by him and we are created for him. Yes. We're not created for ourselves. That's the big disconnection. So it leads to bondage, regardless of any type of religion or any type of worship that is outside the worship of Jesus Christ and the 
power of the Holy Spirit unto the Father by his blood, there's going to be bondage. But Christianity is the only one that liberates men. Did you know that? It's not just the freedom of guilt and shame from sin. It's not just the freedom and the assurance of eternal life. It is freedom to the uttermost. Liberty in every sense of the word. It is the only one that liberates. Jesus said, for freedom's sake, I made you free. Just because you can, just because, just because I love freedom, I make you free. Just because. Only one. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Freedom. Right? He frees us in every way. It's the only one. Romans, do you not know who you present yourselves as slaves to? They, the ones you present yourself to obey, you become a slave to it. If you present yourself to sin, you will become a slave to sin. That thing that you think you're controlling will ultimately control you. That thing that you think you have power over will ultimately have power over you. It's the same way with the gospel. We present ourselves to Jesus. What we're looking for and what we want is we want more of his power over us. You understand? I don't want less of him over me. I want more of him. You know, not just my feet, Lord, my whole body. Not just my spirit, Lord. Every arena of my life, rule and reign, kingdom come, will be done. The Romans gives us an indicator. What you follow is what you become, and what you follow is what you become bound to. You follow intellectualism, you become bound to it. I'm all for intellectualism. I'm not against it. But intellectualism, as it submits itself to Christ, I believe Christians should be smart. The kingdom shouldn't be kingdom. It should be Christians that are dumb. But how much more would your mind expand if you gave it unto the Lord? How much more? The one who gave that to you, how much more would you see? How much more would you understand? A lot. Syria was oppressed and more merciless. Haman was the captain. Leprosy is a disease of the flesh. Attacks the mucus glands of the body and causes the nerve endings in the flesh to die. Leprosy leads to secondary infections, and those secondary infections often lead to death. It's a death sentence. It's not only a death sentence, it exiles you from everybody else. You become a horrendous sight. Next slide. He's a slave owner, Hebrew slave. He served a king. His king's name was Ben Hadad, okay? which means the son of Hadad. Who's Hadad? Well, if you were here with us for uh, uh, Elijah, you know that Jezebel worshipped a god named Baal. He was the sky god, god of the thunder, the wind, and the rain. We would know him as the climate god. <laughs> the climate god of the ancient world, Jezebel Baal. And Dad is the same god to the Sumerians. The same word for Baal is the same, is the same god, the horned god of the sky, is Hadad. The Greeks knew him as Jupiter, the Romans knew him as, or excuse me, the Greeks knew him as Zeus, the Romans knew him as Jupiter, the, uh, the Egyptians knew him as Amon, the Hindus know him as Indra, and the Vikings, or the Norwegians, know him as Thor. Infinity Wars, bro! Yeah. <laughs> Same guy. What does what Thor do? He holds up the hammer and what? Lightning, right? He controls the storms. He's the god of the sky, he's the god of the planet. And so Ben Hadad is there, so God is actually in a, in a conflict here with Ben Hadad. And so he took with him, so, so uh, Naaman decides he's going to go and see Elisha. He departs and he takes ten talents of silver, okay? This boy's like, he's balling. Six thousand shekels of gold and ten Armani suits. 
And then he brought the letter of the king to Israel. So he goes to Israel, gives him the king, says, hey, I'm here to see your prophet. The king freaks out and goes, and my God, how are we supposed to heal you? If we don't heal you, you guys are going to come and make and just break your contract with us and you're going to kill us all. Well, that wasn't the case. And when it happened that the king of Israel wrote the letter, he got freaked out. And then Elijah, the man of God, I'm down here, moving a little quick, but I'd like to get to the passage. Uh, you can read it all. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. And Elijah, the man of God, said, heard that the king had torn his clothes. He said, hey, why are you clothes tearing your clothes? Bring this dude to me. The Lord's going to heal him. He got a word. He said, I'm going to heal him. And he said, then he's going to know that there's a God in Israel. He's going to know that there's a prophet in Israel. He's going to know that that dad isn't the man. Jesus is the man. If you understand everything, he says, everything that relates to a prophet is prophetic. There's a prophetic message in everything about the prophet. So when you're reading, particularly Elisha, Elisha, there's a prophetic story right in almost anything, from where they're from, the clothes that they wear, the way that they did things. All of this has a prophetic meaning. This guy, to the ancient world, these things were important. So this guy was a very spiritual person. He was a very knowledgeable person, and he understood certain principles. He knew you don't come to a God and empty-handed. You don't come before the Lord empty-handed. You, you bring an offering when you come. You don't come with nothing. That's an interesting principle because that's found throughout the Old and the New Testament. No one was allowed to come before the Lord empty handed. Did you know that? Even the poor had to buy a pigeon. Yes. Even the poor had to buy a duck. They had no money for anything else. God said, You're going to bring something before me. The widow had two, two mites, right? She couldn't come. It was two pennies. Two copper coins was the price of the dove. So instead of giving the dove, she gave the copper coins. You understand? But not even the poor would come before the Lord empty-handed. Why? Does Jesus need her two copper coins? No. But when we offer, we create a bridge for him to do something. He can't do anything if we don't make a bridge. You understand that? It's an offering. We offer unto him, and then he moves back. That's the principle throughout Scripture. That's why I get you to release to the Lord and receive from the Lord. Because you cannot fully receive until you release. You have to release yourself onto him, and then he's going to come back on you. So it's the principle that's created. You see, water go up, water come down. Do you not understand that? Yeah. Rain goes up, rain comes down. It's the principle of release, right? That's the principle. The seed goes into the ground, and the seed comes up. There's a principle of release. It's, it's there, right? It's there. It's not just physical. It's not just agricultural. It's not just geological or, or atmospheric. It's, it's spiritual. God sold spiritual principles into physical things. If we're smart enough to understand them, if we're wise enough to see what he's doing, we'll see. Father, the Bible says, go to the end. You understand God? Go to the end. What's he talking about? Go here. I don't read the story. But he tells him, go and study the end. And understand God's ways. By what? Looking how ants operate. They store their food. They work them in order. They build things systematically. He tells us to look at these things. So this guy's bringing, everybody say with me, multiples of ten. Everything he's bringing is a multiple of ten. He brings ten talents of silver. What's ten, right? So ten in the Bible is two things. It's the number of testing and it's the number of infinity. It is an infinite multiplier, so it relates to a prophetic number of infinity. Silver in the Bible, over and over again, is a prophetic meaning that relates to righteousness. So what is Naaman saying? When he's presenting this offering to the Lord. You are infinitely righteous. That's the offering that he's presenting. That's the declaration that he's making with God. Ten talents of silver. Infinity of righteousness. Why? He comes to him with six thousand shekels of silver. 
That's about two to three million dollars in today's money, conservatively. You don't think this guy had a coin? He had money. And he brought it with him. He didn't come and go, oh, I'm going to offer the guy a hundred bucks and see if he'll lay hands on me. <laughs> he brought a caravan. He brought it. He said, this, if this God is, if this God can heal me, he is worthy of honor. If this God can save me, he is worthy of everything that I have. If a Gentile, a non-believer, and, and, and a wicked man can do this, how much more should the people of God not understand this principle? That the one who saved you is worthy of everything you have. The one who gave you his spirit is worthy of everything you have. The one who gave you his word is worthy of everything you have. And if wicked Naaman can get that concept, how much more do we not need to understand that concept? And not just understand it, but live it. He gives him 6,000 shekels. Well, that's a multiple of 10. 6 times 10, 10 times 60, and then 60, or is 600, then 600 times 10 is 6,000. So he does a multiple of 6 and 10 three times. Well, what's 6? The number of men. And what is gold? So he brings in gold. Gold is goodness, gold is glory. So what is David saying? You are infinitely good to man over and over and over again. That's what he's saying. That's what that offering is saying. Do you, get, do you guys understand what I'm connecting here? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Right? And so we have an infinity of, now he goes 10 changes of garments, 10, ten you know, designer suits, man. He brings that. But what is the suit? The changing of, the changing of clothing in the scripture always relates to transformation. So he's saying infinity of righteousness, you are infinitely good to man, over and over and over. That's what he says. And then he brings 10 suits. Why didn't he multiply it by six? Why didn't he multiply it by two? Why didn't he multiply it by five? Why is it multiple 10? Because there's a word in the offering. You understand this? This is prophetic. This is a prophetic sequence of the Bible, one of the prophetic messages of the Bible. So he gives him 10 Armani suits. What is it? Clothes relate to transformation. You are the infinite transformer. You are righteous. You are good to man over and over and over, and you will infinitely transform. And that's the offering that he presents. And you know what Jesus says? You're speaking my language. It wasn't the money. The money wasn't speaking his language, people. It was knowing who he was. That's what spoke his language. You want to know, you start telling Jesus who he is, you got his attention. You are good, Lord. You are infinite. Just try it out. You're going to feel glory come on you. And you're going to feel the Spirit come over you. You know what he's going to do? He's going to go, yes, yes. And he's going to affirm what you're saying. Lord, you are good. Lord, you are good this season and out. You are good to me. You are the infinite transformer. You are wealthy, Father. You are generous. You love me. You are for me. You begin to declare who he is. You are the righteous one. You are the one who is able you are good to endless generations. You are merciful. You are kind. You are the one who can transform. You're, what you do, if I say it with me, honor, honor creates, creates access. access. See, the honor and the access opens. You do not honor, you will not access. That's why we got a bunch of sour Jewish Christians walking around. It's true. They do not understand the principle and the concept of honor. They understand it only from the point of self. Jesus is my bellhop. Ring, ring. Well, he didn't do it. I asked for medium rare. You brought me well done. Get this away from me. Or I've been waiting 20 minutes for that, Lord. We think only in the perspectives of ourselves. And when we seek him, we are seeking merely to honor ourselves. We're not seeking to honor him for who he is. We call it seeking his hand instead of his face. Big difference. Now, should we seek his hand? A thousand times over. Yes, he tells us to. 
But we should honor the beauty of his holiness. We should honor his face. We should bless him just because who he is. Elijah goes to a widow woman, and all this widow woman is doing is blessing him, and it's freaking him out. He's like, this chick hasn't asked me for anything, you know? And he starts going, I need to give her something, because all she's doing is honoring me. She's the first person that he had encountered that didn't want anything from him. And he was beside himself. He's a prophet of God. He's carrying the anointing. He represents the Lord. Everybody wants something. Pray for me. Lay hands on me. Pray for my ancestor. Pray for my wallet. Help me play for my future. Give me a word. Pray for me, you know. They all wanted something. This woman wanted nothing from him. She merely wanted to honor him. And when she honored him, his whole heart opened up to her. And he was like, man, i got to give her something. You understand how this works? we got our paradigms all wrong. We wonder why God doesn't, why, why this activation of the kingdom isn't working in our lives. And that's where we're all like, hey, y'all like clowns so tight and bitter and religious. And we get mad every time somebody gets blessed or somebody gets something. We get jealous. And we go into insecurity and go in the corner and suck our thumb. Because we don't understand honor. We have to understand the concept of honor. We honor him. We honor him. And I honor you, Lord, for blessing this person with what you have. I thank God that he has blessed you. Because if he blessed you, he's going to bless me. Yes. Because he's no respecter of persons. Right? Lord, I want that. You know, we come up here and we're praying. Shares one of those prayer people last night. And I wanted to say, but I didn't, my microphone was off, but I wanted to say, whatever you feel, if she's praying and saying something over somebody, and you feel like you want that, well, reach out and take it. You understand? It's not exclusive to the person. Some things are, but, but blessing is, is universal. We can access what is in the room. We can access what is in the spirit. So, oh, man, I don't want that. I want a vision and a revelation of my future. No, Lord, give me that. I take that right now. Jesus goes, yeah, you can have it, too. <coughs> Naaman was speaking of the nature of God. He was speaking his language. Next slide. Infinity, righteousness, willing, able. Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, and he goes and stands in front of the door. Elijah doesn't even come to the door. You understand this? This is another key part. Naaman shows up. He's got the caddies out there. He's got the stretch limos. He's got it blinging out, man. He comes in a caravan of killer cars. Parks right in front of Elisha's door, gets out, puts his shades on, and waits to see if Elisha's going to come out. Elisha doesn't even come out. Then he comes to the door. Well, why? Elisha had some issues. Understand that? Elisha had some prejudices. So he didn't even come to the door. He sends his servant to go and talk to him. Jesus didn't have the issue, but Elisha had the issue. And Elisha had the issue for good reason. These people have oppressed my people. These people have stolen from us for a couple of generations now. These people are in the land that they shouldn't be in, and they're oppressing us. So he had a problem, right? Kind of like Jonah. Jonah had a problem. Yeah. Jesus didn't have the problem. Jonah had the problem, right? So Elisha's got the problem here. He doesn't even want to go to the door. He says, just go tell him to wash the river if you want. Just go tell him about it. Right? What happens? David gets mad. The Bible tells us twice he got angry. You think he was not mad? Scripture says this once, it's important. It says it twice, it's really important. It says, go to wash the river. David became furious. He says, what? He's telling me to go wash in the dirty Jordan River? I thought surely he was going to come out to me, stand in front of me, call it as God laid his hand and I was going to be clean. I thought I was going to get a show here, man. I mean, I put on a show for him. 
I'm bringing him the coin. Where's my show? <laughs> most powerful thing Jesus ever does. Most, most powerful miracles he ever performs is performance about a show. Yeah, a demonstration? Absolutely. But what he wanted is he wanted a ceremony. He wanted this whole ceremony, this huge big ordeal made about Naaman. Naaman's problem was he loved himself a lot. He worshipped his flesh, if you will. That's probably one of the reasons why he had leprosy. Leprosy is a disease of the flesh. So he would probably link his disease to the issues that he had with himself. He had issues with himself. He worshipped himself, his flesh, his wants, his desires. That was what was glorified in his life. And he got mad when his ego was insulted because of the A, the prophet wouldn't come to the door, and B, he tells him to go down and wash in a dirty river. <laughs> So he turned away, so here's the verse when he's furious, and now he's in rage. And his servants come to him and say, Lord, if the prophet had asked you to do a mighty work, you would have done it. But because he asked you to do a small thing, this is offensive to you, why don't you just go and do it? And so Naaman goes down, and he washes in the dirty Jordan River. What is God doing? God is, first of all, it's the same thing you see again, this is another principle, Syrophoenician woman, Jesus calls her a dog. Not loving Jesus, he embraced everyone. He offended her directly. But she was a dog. She was a Syrian. She was a half breed, a Syrian Phoenician. She was a Syro Phoenician woman. Very offensive to the Jews because both the Phoenicians and the Syrians were like devil worshippers, basically. And here comes this pagan woman to him and asking him to perform a miracle for her daughter. He looks at her and he says, Yeah, you don't get what is holy to dog, the bread is for the children. And she says, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus goes, you're speaking my language. You understand who I am. You know that I am good. You know that I am merciful. You know that I am generous, and you know that I am willing. And she did it right in the heart. He went, you have what you want. You see the principle of honor there again? Had nothing to do with it. It's the same thing with Nineveh. Had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with how wicked a person is. If they will honor the Lord, he will bless them. Who was like that? I'm sorry. Who was like that? I don't know anybody like that. So he goes down and he dips seven times in the Jordan according to the word. You ever say, according to the word. He did what he was supposed to do. Big point here. He dipped seven times. Is seven the magic number? No. It means he dipped until it was complete. Seven is the number of completion. So understand the language of the scripture. When it tells us the number seven, it's not saying seven is the magic number. Like Elijah, he prayed seven times until he saw the cloud. Was seven the magic number? No. Seven means do it until it happens. Everybody say, we do it, do it until it happens. When God gives you an instruction, do it until it happens. When God gives you a promise, press into it until it happens. We're so timid. Well, I did once. Leprosy's still there. You know what I'm saying? It's so wrong. You don't want to repeat it. Lord, I prayed that you would break into my life. I prayed. Nothing happened. Lord, I prayed seven times. Nothing happened. Did you pray 70 times? Did you pray 700 times? The Bible is telling us this principle of, of, of do it until it happens. Jesus said the same thing knocking on the door, right? Go for bread, knock on the door until it happens. Follow the unjust judge around. Get, get what you need from that person until it happens. Press is the issue. Do it until it happens. And his flesh is restored and he was clean. Next slide. Elijah doesn't go to him. Naaman's angry. He wanted to show Jesus requires humility and obedience. Wow. 
David feels his ideas are superior. Now we're going to come right up into your living room, Christian. Here's the problem with the activation of the principles of God in your life. The Lord will give you a word, but most of the time, you think your ideas are better. Hmm. I saw that crickets come out of the room there for a minute. Wow. He said, go dip in the Jordan. And he goes, are you kidding me? There's three beautiful rivers in my land, and I'm supposed to dip in that? No, I got a better idea. We do the same thing. The Lord will tell you something that makes no sense to you. It might even, ready, hold the chair, it might actually offend you. We are so dignified and stupid as Christians, we let the kingdom go right by us because of our arrogance. Wow. We let the kingdom go right by because we're trying to preserve what other people think of us. Mm. We're too dignified. It's churches, let's have dignified worship. <laughs> I want to tell you, you read the Bible? David's like carpeting in his underwear. You know what he was called undignified? He said he brought the Lord glory. If you think that you think that's undignified, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm willing to be obese myself and to be exalted. I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order that he may be exalted. He feels his ideas are superior. He looks down on the word that is given to him. That's a bad thing. God, if you will hope the Lord, he will give him counsel. No matter what your circumstances, the Lord will give you counsel. If you have the spirit of wisdom, the mind of Christ will give you a prophetic word, will give you scripture, or will give you a word right in your heart. But you cannot think your ideas are better. If you want kingdom activation, you know what the first step is? Lord, I know nothing. That is your, you must be, what is he talking about? Come on, coming as a child. It's the same concept. I know nothing, Lord. I don't have any good ideas. Jesus, you're the only good idea I have. What do you want me to do? And he'll either give you instruction, sometimes he'll tell you what's in your heart. What is in your heart to do? Do that. He'll give you a, a, a different levels and directions of instruction. But what you cannot do is think you know better. Lord, why am I going bless? And he'll go. And you'll go, no, it can't be that. In other words, Lord, didn't tell me why I'm not blessed. Why do you think your ideas are better? I just told you, Kevin, you don't want people to think you know better than me. Then you figure it out. I just told you why. But you think you know better, so you, you go figure it out. And you know what I get? If I don't hear and activate what he told me, I won't get another word until I do something like that. That's why many of you would silent over you. There's different reasons. That the dumb comes through rebellion. Understand that? Spiritual deepness, spiritual deafness comes because there's an issue of rebellion. I'm not talking about you're out smoking, drinking, and chewing. I'm talking about rebellion and not to set that into what God has told you. He has told you something, you refuse to do it. Therefore, there is no other word to you until you do the word that he told you. Do you understand that? That's what it's talking about. His servants tell him to be humble, he's healed, he repents, he confesses the God of Israel. Next slide. He returns to the man of God, so he comes back, and now Elijah comes out and sees him. Oh. You're obedient. You humbled yourself, Naaman. Well, I guess I'll talk to you. And so he comes out and he talks to him. He tries to get Elisha to take the money. Elisha won't take the money. Okay? Elijah didn't take the money. Why? Because God was not trying to honor the prophet. He was trying to reach Naaman. You'll see Elisha says later, this was not the time to take the money. This was not the time for us to receive honor. There's a time for us to receive honor as believers, as leaders, as Christians, and there's a time to honor those others. 
So God was trying to honor Naaman and bring him to him, and he was trying to show Naaman a different idea. I'll heal you just because I'm good. I'm not going to heal you because you come rolling in here with Cadillacs and Armani suits. That doesn't impress me. What impresses me is your faith. What impresses me is that you know who I am. You know that I'm infinitely good. You know that I'm infinitely righteous. And you know that I'm infinitely willing to transform you. That's what's impressed me, Naaman. So I can take all that stuff away because I'm going to be good to you just because. How many know Naaman was probably like in a state of shock? He was probably like, he'd never experienced anything like this in his life. Because their worship was a completely different style. He said, you do me this one favor. He said, when I have to go to the temple of Ramon, so his nation worshipped other gods, his king worshipped other gods, he would be required by his king to go into the temple of his king. And he would be required to go through ceremonies in the temple of his king. And he says, listen, when I'm there, understand that my heart is serving the God of heaven. I'm only there for ceremonial purposes. I'm not there bowing because I need to bow or I want to bow. I'm not bowing because my heart is there. And he says, well, the Lord grant me this request. And Elisha says, go in peace. A lot of you, you work in environments that are not the most godly environments in the world. You understand that? You're like, well, I think I should quit because this just isn't really a godly environment. Well, you're in a place where your heart, you're, you're probably being a light in the darkness. Naaman was going to be, now he's converted, he's going to be in the right place at the right time doing the right things, and he had to do things that required something of him that didn't really line up with his heart. I just had a conversation here in Orlando trying to organize this thing, whatever we're trying to do, and I met a pastor whose name is Rashid, and he's Pakistani, I sat down with him and I talked to him, had a great conversation, I'm trying to bring him here, he may come at the end of the month, so hopefully, but anyway, he's planted 20 churches in Pakistan, uh, 15 churches in Nepal, and he's in Dubai right now. And uh, he was telling me about the blasphemy laws that exist in Pakistan. He said, if you convert from Islam to Christianity publicly, he said, you can be killed. And he said, anybody can kill you, and they won't be charged with it. And he was telling me people that had been murdered and all this. And he told me, he said, he said God is doing a great work in Pakistan in the hearts of these people. He said, outwardly, they must be Muslims. He said, but inwardly, I'm telling you, they're born again, they're believers. And you know, here's the thing we against Christian piety, because I'd love to just tear out these religious gods that we worship. You know, we want to go, well, I believe that Christians should acknowledge their faith even in the worst of circumstances. So I don't know if I agree with them hiding their true identity for the sake of, really? You can't even confess Jesus to your neighbors. You can't even confess Jesus to your boss. Let alone be in a circumstance that's going to cost you your life if you confess him. Wow. And not just your life, but the life of your entire family. Because they don't just kill you. You have dishonored your family. They go after your whole family. Wow. They're not that nice. So while we sit there and judge them piously, I don't believe that we should, you know, I believe that the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs is the foundation of the church. That's a true statement. You know what I say to you? You first. <laughs> you first.
he's got a room in a retirement home because that's where he can rent. I don't know how he ended up there. I'm looking at this dude, and I'm sitting next to him like anybody that has that kind of faith, man. You know, I want you to come back. He didn't ask for anything. He was very unassuming. And I was like, man, I'm going to pray about this. I want to pray you out. I'll wait until you share with people what you're doing. I'm like, man, I'm sitting next to somebody who's got, I'm talking about like all in faith, all in. I'm like, that's what we need. I got more to that. I got four minutes. Take the earth with me. Christian, say this with me. What I encountered, what I experienced, I can carry. See that? He said, I'm going to take the earth with me. The ground where I was healed, I wouldn't carry it with me. What you can heal that you carry it. What God has delivered you from, and what God has set you free from, and the places that God has brought you into. You carry this now. And what you carry, you can now impart. Another thing we don't understand, you can you carry what you encounter. You people that need healed with cancer, I was over there with people here that have been healed with cancer. I'm like, what do you heard of cancer? Let me get about three of these people who have been healed with cancer. Hey, come over here, help me lay hands on this person with me. Why? Because they carry what this person needs. Because they have encountered it, and they carry it. I go, what do you want me to do? I go, I want you to take whatever you remember receiving from the Lord, in that moment, or whatever, whatever, whatever it is you feel like you receive from the Lord, and I want you to release it to this person in the right. That's all I want you to do. Just release what you're carrying. That's it. That's it. We carry what we encounter. Next slide. Or we can carry. We don't always decide to. Last slide here. I'm going to jump really quickly through here. We're going to say prayer. Sorry about the time. I knew this was going to be long. Gehazi was the servant of Elisha. Elisha sets the guy free, and Gehazi goes. He let that guy go without taking any of that money. He's too easy on this guy. This guy needs to pay. So Gehazi runs after him and says, hey, he lies. He said, I, you know, we got a couple of problems. He just came into town. They don't have any money. don't have any clothes. I was thinking maybe, maybe we could give us some clothes and some money. And he goes, by all means, take what you want. So he takes the two bars of silver, two changes of clothes, and Gehazi takes it off. And he goes and hides it in his house. And Elisha goes, where were you, Gehazi? He goes, nowhere. So now he lies there and he lying in, right? And he goes, no word, he said, did my spirit go with you? Didn't I see you with the chariot of the man of the spirit? Then I know what you just did. And he tells him, it is not the time to take this thing from him. It is not the time for us to receive it. God's doing something different in the life of this guy. This isn't about our honor. This is about something different. That time will come, but that time is not now. And he says, because you've done this, because you've operated with greed and deception, you now have inherited a curse upon you and your descendants. I could do a whole takeoff right there on generational curses. He says, you will be lepers, you and all of your line from here forth. He was an ancestor who an act of disobedience and a, and, a, and a covenant with wickedness, greed, and deception has inherited the disease of the flesh. Miracles of honor require honor and humility. Jesus will be merciful to all. Say this with me. I will not, I will not, and I refuse, and I refuse to get hazy. Greed. And deception will not rule my life. The last point is deal with generational junk. So we're going to say a prayer. Let's say a prayer together. You guys want the last slide? Put the last slide up there. Would you stand your feet if you would? I'm going to interact with the message here a little bit. So what are we going to say, Kevin? I don't know. Just take a red pill, man. <laughs> Jesus the Morpheus is handing you a red pill. So not a red pill. I'm going to make this confession. Say, Father, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you, I come before you and I ask for forgiveness for every time I have acted as superior to your instructions in my life. I repent 
every time I refuse to humble myself. Every time I have stopped your word, your spirit, or your ways, I renounce my spirit to me. I will not be worldly. I will be spiritual. I will receive from and learn from the atmospheres you place me in. Here we go. I renounce greed. Inception over my life, and I receive spirit generosity and truth. I will be generous towards your house, towards your people, towards your ways. Here we go. I will not define what generosity is. I will allow you to tell me what generosity is. I believe in miracles. I activate miracles over and over my life. I will do whatever it takes to release your glory in my life and in the life of others. I the Holy Spirit. I open my life to you. Teach me to hear, to see, to feel as you do, so that I may know how to follow you more. All right, you believe that? Thank you. We have a prayer team available for you if you need prayer for anything at all, and I'm going to bless you one more time. Blessing you coming in, blessing you going out. Just receive it. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May He give you peace. May you grow a little bit stable. In Jesus' name. Amen. I love you. I love you. Great week. So we're just going to go. I highly doubt the last four minutes. So. We have been doing a teaching series called A Tale of Two Prophets. We have been talking about two very significant prophets in the Old Testament. One of them, help me out, Elijah. The second one is Elisha. That's right. So we have two very significant prophets in the Old Testament. Just by way of background, we need a lot of background here this morning. We need a lot of... Uh, I'm going to give you a lot of background here this morning. I'm going to give you a lot of history. You're going to learn a little bit about your Bible, quite a bit about your Bible. And uh, the reason for it is a lot of times we don't read it or we don't value the Word of God because we really don't have a lot of association to what's going on and we don't understand the story and we don't understand the setting. During this time, the nation of Israel has divided into the north and the south. What happened is the northern kingdom decided they split. And the northern kingdom said, we're going to worship God the way we want to worship God. We don't need to worship the God of heaven. We don't need to worship the God of David. We don't need to worship the God of Abraham. We're going to come up with our own gods, and we're going to worship the gods of the culture. And so they departed from the Lord. The north left the Lord and departed from him. And in doing so, the nation went into a very dark period. They had, I think, 19 successive wicked kings in a row. That's pretty bad. So 19 wicked rulers in a row, so the nation was oppressed. Then they continued down their path, and the Lord kept calling them back to himself, and they wouldn't follow, so he allowed another nation to come over them. And this was the nation, everybody say it with me, Assyria. Right. So he let the Assyrians come over the nation. At this time in the story, this time in Israel's history, Assyria is ruling Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, that's in the south ruling the northern kingdom. And what the northern kingdom had to do is they had to pay tribute to Samaria, or to, to Assyria. So you're under their rule, so the Assyrians are there, their military's in your land, they're, 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 just, they're in, your, in your property. 
And the nation had to pay tribute, they had to pay money, uh, whatever they wanted to take from them, they took. And it's during this time where it's really dark in the north, and it's really fallen in the north, and the people have left God, that Jesus sends prophets to them. He sends Elijah, and then he sends Elisha. The most powerful part of this, and one of the things that we need to take away from the story of Elijah and Elisha, is that the northern people were not looking for Jesus. They were not looking for God. They didn't care. They were going their own way. They were in darkness, and God sent light into the darkness. So that's how merciful and kind Jesus is. As he sends light into the darkness. He looks for us even when we're not looking for him. Right? He came to seek and save without which I love. He comes and looks for us and he sends messengers and people and places and things. Some of you come to the church like, I don't even know why I'm here. Because light has come into the darkness. You've been invited into something. So Jesus presents light to our darkness or light into our distance. He provides ways home. All of these things, he comes to us even when we're not looking for him because he's that good. Because he's that kind. And so he, come on. And so he sent Elisha, and now he's got Elisha. Elisha is now ministering in the north. And this guy, and now the Assyrians are in charge. I'm going to read you the story, I'm going to break this down. I'm going to give you a lot of background here, a lot of history. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. So that's Assyria. Assyria is ruling, or uh, is, uh, Israel is subjected to Assyria at this time. And Naaman is there. And he was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him, God had given victory to Syria. So God was using Syria during this time. He was using them for specific purposes, which I don't have time to get into. He recorded this. But this guy, Naaman, was also a man of valor, but he was also a leper. He's got lots of things going for him, but he's got leprosy. Okay? And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive young girl to look from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. So just give you a little window into how these Assyrians. They're not nice people. I'm going to break it down for you a little bit more. And why Israel was kind of in tension with them. The Israel's, these Assyrians were slave, Naaman's a slaveholder. So they were taking captives of the nations that they had subjected, and they would take their captives. More than likely, what happened here was this girl's parents were killed. Because usually the way the story went is they would execute the elders, so they would most definitely either execute the men, or they would severely name the men, because they didn't want the men rising back up against them. So they would cut them down, or they would do some really bad things, they would cut their fingers off so they couldn't shoot a bow, they would put their eye out so they couldn't stand behind a shield, they would do serious things. So if they didn't kill you, they would name you. They also took their captives and they would cut their ears off of their captives, and they would cut the nose off of their captives. The Assyrians were not nice people. When they brought you in chains and into bondage, they put a hook in your jaw. From, from here to here. They didn't put it here, they put it underneath the bone of your jaw, so that when they led you away captive, they went like this. When Assyria went too far, which God was allowing certain things to be done, but they, they reached past their point, God told the king of Assyria that if he didn't back up, the Lord was going to put a hook in his jaw. He said, if you don't tell the son of prophets, the king of Assyria, tell me he needs to back up. If he doesn't back up, I'm going to put a hook in his jaw, and I'm going to pull him out to a place that he doesn't want to go. So they were very wicked people. The Assyrians were some of the forerunners of crucifixion. But they didn't crucify you, they impaled you. Okay? So they put a long spear spike in the ground, and they dropped you on it, and you just kind of slid down until you died. They were, they were the forerunners of crucifixion. The Romans looked at that and went, huh, we can do better. <laughs> the Romans looked at that and goes, you know, this is a really great 
kind of sadistic way to kill your enemies. And we're into this, man. But I think we can do it a little bit better. Because they're dying too quickly. And so the Romans took it and mastered it so that you would die over a period of days. With the Assyrians, you usually die in a day. Imagine having the spear coming up right through you. When the Assyrians captured the city of Lachish, which was a city in northern Israel when they came in, they literally impaled almost the whole population of the city. And there's reliefs and pictures and everything where the Assyrians are assaulting the city of Lachish, and the Jewish people or the Hebrew Jewish people are defending it, and then ultimately the city falls, and the, the kings of Assyria would impale the prisoners all around, burn the city to the ground, and leave the inhabitants hanging on spears. Not nice people. Can we agree with that? Okay, so not only that, this guy Naaman is a commander of the army, which means he's in charge of this stuff. So he's walking around going, okay, we're going to impale this hundred, we're going to cut the ears off this group, we're going to cut the nose off this group, take all these kids and sell them as slaves, because the children were sold as slaves. They separated them, or they killed the family, and then they took the child as a slave. Not nice people. Naaman was overseeing this, he was not objective. What the Bible's trying to show you is this incredibly wicked man who's about to experience a miracle of grace. And if you don't think God is good to the wicked, you don't know him at all. And if you think God's goodness is predicated upon you, you don't know him at all. Because he's about ready to show us grace and favor upon a man who completely didn't deserve it. And he was wicked to the people. He held this little girl as a prisoner in his house. His wife had a Hebrew slave. And he had purchased her, or he had taken her from the raiders, for himself. And she waited on Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, if only my master were to go to the prophet in Samaria, the prophet of my people can heal him. Now there could be a whole story here about this girl, right? We talk about doing good to those who do evil to you. Can you imagine you're a child, maybe 15 years old, and you're in this woman's house, and you're serving as her slave, and you know that this guy is responsible for either killing your parents or taking everything that you could possibly want from them. And you look at him and you probably go, yeah, he's a lovely God, what he deserved. But she didn't do that. She said, you know, there's a God in heaven who is merciful and kind. He has a prophet among my people, and if you will go to him, that prophet will heal you. Come on. And so he goes to his king, who is Ben-Hadad II, I'll talk to him about it in a second. He goes to his king and he says, hey, there's this little girl that's this whole Hebrew slave in my, in my house. She said, I can be healed if I go to this prophet in Israel. And the king says, go, I'll send a letter before you. So the background, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. This is an important thing to know. When you're reading your Bible, anytime the Bible uses the word now, it's indicating a period of time that's essential. Because it doesn't always use it. So when it says now, or it begins the chapter, or begins the story with the word now, it's emphasizing a period of history. And so we should probably, when it uses the word now, we should at least be aware of the period of history that it's talking about. And so he's using the word now, so let's look at the history here. In this moment of time, so Assyria is standing in the midst of a long train of empires. So these empires were begun by a guy where I say, with Nimrod. In the book of Genesis, there's a guy that comes on the scene, his name is Nimrod. Nimrod, the Bible said, the Bible references him this way. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. We go, ooh, what's he hung deer, he hung elk, what's his deal? That's not really what it's referencing, because we know more about him through history. The Bible is referencing Nimrod as a very charismatic person who would draw people to himself, and those he couldn't draw to himself, he would enslave or at least subject. Nimrod became a very powerful person. He founded cities. 
In the ancient world, they didn't have nations, they had city-states. Okay? You know anything about ancient Greek? It was all about city-states. Athens, Troy, Sparta, they were all city-states. All in the same country, region, but they all fought against each other. The cities were the positions of power. Nimrod founds city-states. He founds Babel, he founds a city called Akkad, he founds, he founds Nineveh, and he founds a city called Ur. So this, this guy plays significantly in the history that goes forward. The, Babel, the city of Babel ultimately became with the, the Babylonians. The city of Akkad with the Akkadians, and the Nineveh, which was where Syria is, or was, and still is, and Ur was the Ur of the Chaldeans. So that these, these city-states, everybody say with me, I've got to keep you with me, became, say with me, three empires. They became the Sumerians, they became the Assyrians, and they became the Babylonians. So what happens here is Ur was a Chaldean or was a, um, a Sumerian city. They all spoke the same language. They all spoke Sumerian, one dialect, one, one dialect or another. Akkad, the city-state of Akkad conquers the Sumerians. And so when Akkad or the Akkadians conquered the Sumerians, they formed a new empire and called themselves the Assyrians. Okay? So after Nimrod died in, in a period of time, these city-states became very powerful and they started competing with one another. They all wanted to be the man, right? They all wanted to be the, the guy that was the, the one that was in charge. They wanted to control the trade. They wanted to control everything about what was going on in the world. We don't see that at all, do we? <laughs> that goes on today. And so Babylon, the Akkadians conquered the Sumerians. They become the Assyrians. The Assyrians ultimately would be defeated by the Babylonians. Where we are in this history right now is the Assyrians are in charge of Israel. The Assyrians were incredibly powerful. They were very, very powerful. They were a very dominant and powerful people, and they invoked fear on everybody that they, they, they dealt with. But one of the ways that the Assyrian Empire fell, Assyria was in northern Israel, and the king, whose name was Shennacherib, said, you know, I don't like, kind of like just having northern Israel. I want to have southern Israel, too. Well, the problem with that was southern Israel was loyal to Jesus, or loyal to the Lord, if you will. We know him as Jesus. We know they were loyal to the God of Israel. They were loyal to their God. And so he goes down into Judah and decides he's going to wipe them out. Well, Sennacherib's big problem was when he got to Jerusalem, he gave a letter to King Hezekiah, and in that letter, and in his proclamation, he makes a statement that's a very dangerous statement for a king to make. He says, who is the Lord? He said, every other country we've been through, we have subjected their gods, we have burned their cities, we have taken everything that we have wanted, we need you to surrender, and that, of course, Hezekiah was like, our Lord, our God, you know, and like, who is your God? That's a very bad thing to say. Okay? Pharaoh said the same thing. It didn't go over a wall for Pharaoh. Pharaoh told Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Right? So here we have Shenacher going, who is the Lord? I'm a man. Who's the Lord? And I was like, oh, yeah, boom, you know. So what happens is Hezekiah takes this letter. This is very good advice. He takes this threatening letter, everything's closing in around him. Anybody know what I'm, what I'm talking about? Anybody ever have these experiences where everything is closing in around you and everything is threatening you? And your, your temptation is to surrender. Your temptation is to yield. And Hezekiah takes the letter, lays it out before the temple of the Lord, and begins to pray and intercede. And God sends a word to Hezekiah through the, through the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah says, Don't worry about it. It's done. The Lord is going to save the city. He's going to protect the people. 150,000 of Shennacherib's men died in a night. Some of them fought among themselves, and some believe it was a plague. There's different things that went on. We know that there were tribal factions, so it's maybe likely that they fought among themselves. Who knows? We don't know all of that. 
But we do know that that happened. So then Sennacherib limps back home. He now has less of an army. And Assyria was never able to invade the south again because they were so weakened. And they were so weakened that in a very short amount of time, Babylon actually got greater than them and then began to conquer the Assyrians. So God wiped them out. And part of the problem was that the king of the king Sennacherib decided he was going to go further than he should. And that's when the Lord said, you better cut it out. We're going to put a hook in your jaw and draw you out. This is going to be good for you. And then they did it. And the Lord, then the Lord made a promise. He said, I'm going to snap Assyria like a stick. He said, they don't want to listen to me, so I'm going to take the rod that I've given them. I'm going to take the authority that I've given them, and I'm going to crack it. And I'm going to cast them aside. And that's exactly what he did. Next slide. So now you know what the Bible is and you thought somebody made this stuff up. The Bible's man-made and man-written. I'm like, oh yeah, try that out. What happened with the people of Israel? I'm getting into the name in here in a second, but I want you guys to see the background as to why this is going on and why this is what you feel what the story is all about. Second Kings 17, they burned this is what it's talking about. The people of the north did these things. What did they do that was so bad? They burned their sons and daughters as offerings. Can you imagine? What level do you have to fall to in order to destroy and murder and kill your sons and daughters? How low do you have to go? They destroyed their sons and daughters, then they began to consult demons through divination and omens, and they began to sell themselves into, the, into bondage with these evil spirits, making offerings to them. If you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. They sold themselves and subjected themselves to evil spirits in the sight of the Lord and provoked him. Now, Jesus never left them, they left Jesus. How many can agree with that? God is not doing anything to them. There's nothing the Lord is doing. God is right here, saying, here's my covering of blessing. And they said, we don't want your covering of blessing, we want to move over here. The Bible says, by a man's own choices, he inherits destruction, but his heart rages against the Lord. This is how we are. So here you have Israel doing whatever they want, breaking all these things, and now they've moved out from the covering of blessing. This is what God is blessing. God blesses what he chooses to bless, not what we determine. He, he's the one who determines righteousness. And so they moved out from the covering of blessing, and then the destruction came upon them through, as a result of their own choices and their own actions, and yet their heart was raging against God. They were blaming God. Jesus didn't move. They moved. And so God, in his mercy, because he knows we're nothing but thumb-sucking children, you're hurting me. He sends a prophet to them and says, look, here's the problem. You're over here. You need to come back over here. If you come back over here and come under the covering of the Lord, you're going to be blessed. You're going to find favor. God will deliver you. They, they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. False religion. They established false religion. Say this with me. All false religions lead to bondage. Hold your chair. Including humanism. What's America's God? We're humanistic. The gods of our culture, the, the United States of America, and most of the Western world, we don't bow down to idols and shrines. We don't burn incense and stuff like that. What we worship is we worship humanism. We worship self. Human intellect, human effort. We worship identity. This is what we worship. Our God is ourself. That's what we worship. You can worship anything you want, but if you don't worship Jesus Christ and his blood and the, and the, the atoning offering that he presents himself as, as God in the flesh, died and resurrected for you, you're worshiping a false religion. Amen. The end of the day. So here we are in America. Let's just see if false religion leads to bondage. 
We worship ourselves. All you got to do is listen to the language and the conversation that goes on within our culture. It's all about human achievement. Most of the intellectuals within our country look down on Christians as if we're idiots. We're stupid. Christians are no, they're just, just you guys who don't think, you follow fairy tales. They, they have no idea, right? They, 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 they judge the believer and they judge all religions because intellectuality is superior. I'm all for intellectualism, okay? As I told first service, intellectualism and identity has been given to us by the Lord, but it is never to be worshipped. Intellectualism, thank you very much. Got some witnesses on this side. I'm going to say it over here. Intellectualism. Intellectualism and identity is given to us by God, but our intellect is to subject itself to Him. Our identity is to subject itself to who He says we are. Right? So we are to take our knowledge and we are to align it with what He gives. What would happen if man, who's been given intellect by a gift, because the gift of intellect is so powerful, that's why we worship it, because it's powerful, right? Everything God gives is powerful, and we end up worshiping. That's why we worship sex, because sex is powerful. We all end up worshiping sex. We've got people who will sacrifice themselves to no end for that, because it's powerful. We say everything is a gift. We worship money, because money in and of itself is powerful. But all of these things are gifts. They are given to us by the gift giver. They are not the idol. You understand? So there's power in the intellect, but the intellect is not subject or not powerful on its own. It should be presented to him. What would happen if you took your mind and said, Lord, I know you've made me smart. You know, I don't know, I guess I'm smart. But I give it to you. Expand it. Show me things that I don't know. Expand to me the knowledge that you have. God, Jesus is a little smarter than we are. Okay? You on your best day is Jesus on his ultimate worst day. Okay? I mean, and we're still not even close. You know what I'm saying? God's way smarter than man. He's way more, he's got it all figured out. You are smart because he, you have an intellect because he gave it to you. The United States worships humanism. We worship self, we worship our mind, we, we're, we're idol worshipers of that, and it leads to bondage. So how do you know that? We are the most medicated country in the world. Depression rates are off the chart in the United States. More than any other Western country, more than any, any country in the world, we are more depressed and more medicated than anybody else. Why? Because we are, we are worshiping ourselves. We're trying to find joy in ourselves. Joy is not found in you. It's not. That's the problem. I'm going to look to myself for the answer. Good luck. Good luck. We'll be waiting a while. Tell me when you get something. Right? The Bible says, I will lift up my eyes to the hill. From there comes my help. You see what I'm talking about? It's a different aspect and a different thing. And we have to be able to recognize the idols within our own country. America is intellectually superior. We worship it, man. We were, just watch people on TV and watch how they talk. Do, do we really need one more award show? No, I'm serious. Do we need one more award show? I'm watching the NBA playoffs, right? And now we've got the NBA award show. I'm like, do we need an NBA award show? Do we need to celebrate one more millionaire's vanity? I mean, seriously. But we're drawn to it, and we're attracted to it. We can't help ourselves because the God is the self. That's what we're worshiping. We're worshiping self. Instagram is a powerful tool. I'm all for Instagram. But have you ever seen what goes on on Instagram? It's all about self. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. I know it's getting quiet in the room, 
Dude, you're getting real close here, Tom. You're getting, you know, the NBA thing was a little out there, but man, don't talk about my Instagram now. Don't talk about that. Just pointing something out. What if you subjected it to Jesus? What if you used what that tool as an opportunity for the Lord? And what if you glorified what God was doing in your life with that tool instead of glorifying yourself? What would happen? That's right. What if you used it as a tool and an instrument to bring him honor? Instead of a tool and an instrument to bring you honor, what would happen? A lot. The Bible says who you present yourselves to, those are who you become a slave to. So whoever you yield unto, or whatever you yield unto, you will become a slave to that. You used to present yourself to sin. Sin becomes your master. Sin becomes your, you become a slave to sin. Or obedience that leads to righteousness. First service, I said this, and went over well, so I'm going to try it out on you guys, right? <laughs> Christianity is the only faith in the world that produces freedom. The only one. Jesus says, for freedom's sake, I have made you free. It's the only one. So when you come to Christ, the continual growth of your life should be one continual mounting expression of liberty and freedom. And the way that he makes you free is he confronts your bondages. So other, you know, whatever, because it's all, we're all false, but the truth is in Christ. And so as we begin to follow Jesus, Jesus' work in your life is to liberate you. That's what he wants to do. And so that's why you come up against fear, because he shows you you're bondage to fear. That's why you come up against greed, because he shows you you're bondage to greed. That's why you come up against whatever it is you're coming up against. Oh, look what God is doing to me. God's not doing anything to you. He's pointing something out. He's showing you. You have an issue here. You fear man. You have an issue here. You have social anxieties. You don't know how many Christians I meet that tell me they have social anxieties. You know what I'm doing? If you have a social anxiety, you can come up and I'll give you one of these after service. I want to grab my shirt and go, Get over it! You should not have a social anxiety. You are loved and accepted by the Father. You are loved and accepted as a son and a daughter. What does it matter what anybody else thinks of you? Why do you have social anxieties? Why do you have an issue with yourself? You shouldn't have an issue with yourself. Jesus doesn't have an issue with you. We are not the, the and we go, well, I'm just, I just have social anxieties. I don't like coming to events. I, don't, you know, I have a hard time even coming to church. Again, high karate. <laughs> Give yourself a couple of high karate's. You should not have that. What that, is, what that is indicating to you is that you have a bondage in an area of your life that needs to be dealt with. That's what's being expressed to you. This is an area of bondage. You are in bondage. This social anxiety is not normal. Crickets, that's fine. That's all right. <laughs> He's, that, that's what he's doing, guys. This is what he's doing. The Spirit's role, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Yeah. 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 Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Holy Spirit's in you, and his constant, forever motion <coughs> is to bring you into freedom. That's what he's working on. And he stops when you stop. When you stop partnering with him to get, to get past your freedom, you can stay like you are for the rest of your life. Nope, he won't make you. I said all the time, Jesus won't work any harder than you. He's going to show you something, and he's going to go, you want to work on that? You go, no, no, okay. And then you're going to come to him, and you're going to cry out to him again, and he's going to go, okay, let's come back to this problem we have, Kevin. Do you want to work on that? No? Okay. And it'll go over and over again until I decide that I'm going to partner with him to work on my problem. But until I partner with him to work on my problem, nothing's going to change. We think it's Shazam. Shazam Christianity. Okay? Charismatic church, spiritual believer standing right in front of you. 
Tongue talker, believe in laying on of hands, and the calling forth of things as though they are not. But here's what happens in the charismatic movement. We get the hands laid on, we fall down on the carpet, and we think that's what's going to transform us. People go lay down on the carpet, they get hit with the Holy Spirit, whatever. Oh, I had a moment. I'm gonna, and then you watch them, and you feel like, how many times does it take before, and I'm, look, I'm not, I'm not mocking it, but they think that's, the, that's how lives are transformed. Lives are not transformed until you confront your issue. It doesn't happen with a shazam, and all of a sudden I'm free. You have to break on. You have to break covenant with the life that you believe. You have to break covenant with the bondage that you have yielded yourself to. Christians believe lies. Lie, lie. We believe we're not worthy. We believe we're not accepted. We pray over people, we impart to people, and I by no means am demeaning this. And I am by no means trying to shame anyone because we all struggle with it because we're broken. We lay hands on people. And every time I lay hands on people and I'm receiving, I, I get this often, the person has a hard time receiving it. They have a hard time receiving it. They want to receive it, but somewhere in their self, in their subconscious, they don't believe they're worthy of it. Or they don't believe that God is good enough to give it to them. So somewhere there's a, an embedded lie. And so a lot of times you see me pray, like last night, and I get the person to confess. Jesus loves me just because. His love for me is not predicated upon me. I get the person to say that. What am I doing? I'm trying to align them with what God says. And I'm saying, I'm going to get them to say, I give myself permission to receive. Let's just say it together. I give myself permission to receive everything that Jesus has for me. Jesus loves me. He loves me just because. His love is not based upon me, upon my opinion, or upon the opinion of others. His love is set upon me. He is determined to love me. Nothing, nowhere, no how will ever separate me from his love. He loves me. Therefore, I am worthy of everything that he has for me. Therefore, I give myself permission Come on, we're not done. I, we're going to embed it. I give myself permission to receive everything he has for me. It's a lot of time when impartation happens and you go going to pray for people and things are going on. It's not even a release of power. Sometimes the issue is with the person. There's an unworthiness. And so you can have glory going out and you feel like it's boomeranging right back to you. Like, or you can see, you can sense that the person is struggling. You can see that. Unworthiness. That is a lie that you have covenanted with. You have covenanted with. You have bought into a lie. A lot of you believe things about God that are not true to his nature nor his character. You believe lies. And those are the things that bring us into slavery and into bondage. And so when the Lord is dealing with you, he is dealing with you in light of your bondage in order to bring you to the point where you're willing to deal with it in order to bring you to freedom. That's what he's doing. Jesus isn't running around putting his finger on you going, oh, look at you, Kevin. You've got a problem with worthiness. When are you going to get it in your head? He doesn't do that. He shows you. You have an issue with worthiness. I want you to give that to me. I want you to partner with me. I want you to walk that out with me. That's what he'll do. And he'll walk you through it. We believe things about God. We believe things about God's nature that are simply not true. They're man-made. That's why we don't manifest power, because we're believing something that's out of the order of what he's established. These are the things that have, we have to become freed from, okay? I had to free my mind. You guys got a few minutes, okay? We got a party. We got one party, it's party for Jesus. Okay, I came from a lot of different things. When I left the organizations that I was with, I came from 
stand up straight, oh, very militant. Then I went into doctrine. Doctrine. Okay, the militant church was spirit-led. So I went from militant spirit-led to doctrine. And then I, and I got doctrine, right? I got it embedded in my palms. Then I went to a group of crazies that were like, free your mind, take the red pill, down the rabbit hole. Woo! And my head hurt because I wasn't, I had never been down this road before. But God was telling me to go down this road because I had limited his ability in my life because everything, I had lined everything up in such a rigid form that he had no ability to move. And so I had to open up and see the world differently. I had to realize that it's okay to be with unbelievers. I had to realize that it's okay to let people come as they are. I had to realize that I am not Jesus' Holy Spirit cop. Okay? It's not necessary for me to run around and ensure the holiness of the church. Okay? A lot of pastors think it's their job. They've got to keep the church holy. I always tell them, there's no holiness without the Holy Spirit, so how are we going on that one? Activate the Holy Spirit, you'd be amazed how holy the church gets. Holy simply means clean. That's all it means. It's not a religious word. If you want to know what the word holy means, it means clean. Clean, pure, perfect. God begins to do his own work when we activate his spirit. I had to learn these things. I had to come up against my own religious bondages. And a lot of Christians, they're doctrinally trained, but they can't get past the doctrine. We talked about it last week. We saw Mary getting Lazarus was being raised from the dead. She had an unbelief. She didn't know who he was that was standing in front of her. She had a doctrine, right? Oh, yeah, he's going to be raised on the last day. Lord, when you come in your kingdom and you raise the dead, yeah, Lazarus is going to be raised. And Jesus is like, no, here now, Mary. I'm the resurrection and the life, right here, right now. Her doctrine, come on, her doctrine, nothing wrong with doctrine, but her doctrine had, could have prevented her from receiving a miracle that was right in front of her because she didn't understand what was going on in the moment. So a lot of times, look, there are churches out there that don't believe in the laying on of hands, they don't believe in the healing of the sick, they don't believe in talking in tongues, they don't believe in any of that. And they have so trained themselves to believe these things that any time they encounter it, they deny it. Well, is the denial based upon the Word of God and the Spirit of holiness, or is the denial based upon dogmas that men have created? The, the denial is based upon dogma. Nowhere in the Bible does God say He stopped healing. Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible does God say He stopped prophesying. Nowhere. Hmm? Acts chapter 2, your sons and daughters will what? Come on, help me out. That's right. The Spirit of God's going to come on you, and all y'all are going to have the ability to prophesy. You're going to have the ability to see, hear, feel, and speak as God would have you to. That is a promise to all. Right? He tells the disciples in Acts 28, you will lay hands on the sick and they will walk. Come on. Yeah. Did he say, I'm going to come down? I want you to call upon me and I will transcend down into the moment and you will see me lay hands on them. He didn't say that. He said, you were going to do it. And then he didn't say this. When you lay hands on the sick, I want you to come to me and I want you to have a debate with me whether or not it's my will. He doesn't say that either. Yet those are the doctrines that we teach. And yet we wonder why power has been arrested within the church. Because our thinking is so screwed up. Or we think we've got to ask, oh Lord, if you would, if you should, if you feel like it. God, if you're in a good mood, you know, just to do something today. When he says lay hands on the sick, when he says this, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, and cleanse lepers, it's in, in the Bible it's called an emphatic imperative, which means it's a direct command. It means 
you do it. So the question would be, how do we do it? Now we're going to learn. How do we do it? We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. How is this possible? How do we bring this forth? All of these questions begin to come to mind and we begin to form something that's actually more in line with truth rather than man's preferences. Yet the power within the church, this is again one region, is the power within the church that's been arrested. It's been held captive. A lot of you, okay, we're coming up on the living room, you guys, you guys are going to hate me. You may not, I don't know, I feel like tomatoes are going to be growing up in my mind here. A lot of you, you have financial issues because you won't tithe. Crickets. Tell me. Jesus never rescinded the tithe, ever. It has never been rescinded. It has moved from mandatory to, to, to where you will do it freely. Why? Because God wants to test your heart. Because we all say, oh, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. Really? Where your treasure is what? Uh -huh. Did he stutter? He didn't stutter. He says it's on purpose. He liberates the tithe in order to see if your heart lines up with your mouth. Oh, I don't know about that. That's not loving Jesus. You need to, you need to read your gospel. He never rescinded the tithe. Never. The tithe is God's financial program for your life. It's not instant scratch-off lottery ticket. It is a lifestyle. And when you will implement it as a lifestyle, you will see the long-term benefits that have been blessed over the tithe. Most people tithe for a week. Nothing happened. It doesn't work. I was telling tithe for a year. I'm just telling you the lies that we believe. And we blame God. And we say, it's he's not blessing me. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. That's the problem. Next slide. Leprosy was a disease of the flesh. Naaman worshipped himself. Naaman was all about his ego, hence the word leprosy, he was really in his flesh. Leprosy attacks the mucous membranes beneath the flesh, deadens the nerve within the skin, the skin dies, leads to secondary infections, and oftentimes leads to death. Naaman served a, God named, a guy named Ben Hadid, who is Hadid. Hadid. Hadid's name is the same word in Sumerian as it is in Phoenician. Phoenician is the god Baal. Hadid in Sumerian is the same god as the god of Baal. Who's Baal? He's the climate god. He's the god of the, of the lightning, the storms, of the wind and the rain. That's how we would know him today. The climate god. You think climate change wasn't happening then? You're crazy. You say, oh, you don't know the science. I don't, I don't really care about the science. What I know is that the world is not going to end with a global flood. What I know is the world is not going to end by the ice age. And what I know is that this creation is not subjected to me, nor any man. This creation is subjected to him, so I'm not going to worship the climate. I'm going to steward it. I'm not going to take from it. I'm going to put back what I take, but we worship the climate. We don't know who he is. I'm not looking at the climate as if that's my indicator. I look at the one who's higher than the climate and put the climate in place. These people worship the God of the climate. Just take that home and think about it. That's all I want you to do. Just take home the idea that all of these cultures, all of them, the Phoenicians, the Sumerians, he is Zeus to the Greeks, he is Jupiter to the Romans, he is Amon to the to the Indian or to the Egyptians, and he is Indra to the to the to the uh, um, uh, Indra to the, to the Hindu people, and he is Thor to the Vikings. Same guy. So we have all of these global cultures for all of this time worshiping climate change, and we think, well. Modern science worships climate change. Dude, it's like been done for, it's been done since the founding of man. So we have to realize what we're doing here. I don't like you, Kevin. You're pushing up on all my belief systems. I'm challenging you 
to go beyond man's thinking. I'm challenging you to go higher. Higher. The world's not going to end with global ice caps. I'm just telling you. How do you know that? Because the Bible doesn't say it. The Bible does not say that the global ice caps are going to melt. Oh, I mean, you know, it doesn't say that. It just doesn't. So where's your faith? Is your faith in Dr. So-and-so? It used to be global warming, but then they couldn't realize that the time, and now they changed it because it wasn't about global warming. So if it's global warming, then why do we have a blizzard in the middle of May? Okay, it can't be global warming. It's got to be climate change. I don't know if you noticed how they pivoted on the language. There's, a, there's been a pivot on the language of that, of that, that on that messaging. They used to say it was global warming. Well, that doesn't explain the blizzards that happen. What do we have in April? It's like one of the coldest, coldest winters on record in, in the Upper East Coast in the Midwest. Well, that doesn't line up with global warming, so we've got to change the messaging and now it's climate change. Anyway, it's there. He departs, okay, so now we need to get back on track. All right, so Naaman departs, he comes to Elisha. He brings with him 10 talents of silver, which is about 180,000 in today's money. He brings with him 6,000 shekels which is of gold, which is about two to three million dollars in today's money. And he brings with him 10 changes of clothes for 10 Armani suits, okay? So he shows up and he is showing up to honor God. He is not showing up empty-handed. So here I'm gonna come right out into the culture of the Christian. If we have a wicked, pagan, evil man who understands you don't come before the God of heaven empty-handed, when will we understand that we don't come before the God of heaven empty-handed? Did you know in the Jewish culture, even the poor had to bring an offering? It's not a sparrow or a dove sold for two mites. They had to bring a dove. So when everybody had to give an offering, and the poor couldn't go, I'm broke, I don't have anything, they had to give an offering. They had to bring a dove. And the dove was two pennies. That's why you see the widow woman giving two mites. Instead of giving the dove, she gave the money. But God required that everybody give an offering. You say, why? Is this God about money? You don't understand. Nature, the substance of God's economy. Water goes up, doesn't it? Before water comes down? Am I, am I, am I correct in that? Do you understand that? Okay. The seed goes into the earth before the seed comes up. God has created a principle of release. There must be a release before there is an activation. When God says, even the poor must get to me, he's not trying to take the widow woman's last mites. So you know, if you read that story, Jesus watched what they gave. Just want to make sure that's understood. He watched what they gave. Jesus is sitting in the temple, and he's watching what they're giving. And he watched the widow get two pennies, and he didn't run up to her and go, Here, ma'am, I know you don't have anything. Why don't you take that back? You know, I just, you need to take it back. He didn't do that. Why? Because he understands that when the, when the poor give that to the Lord, you give Jesus something to work back in your life with. You're releasing something to him in order that there may be an activation back in your life. That is a spiritual principle. That is, that is, that is part of how the kingdom operates. We have to, that's again, that's something that we have to understand. So this guy shows up, he's rolling, right? Says he brought a letter from the king of Israel, brings it to the king of Israel, the king of Israel goes, how are we supposed to heal you, bro? If we don't heal you, what are you going to come and kill us? So the king freaks out. Elijah goes to the king and says, don't worry about it. I pray, the Lord has told me, send him to me, and I'm going to heal him. He said, don't tear your clothes. This is an important point, so I'm going to slow down just for a second here. What Naaman brought to the Lord, everybody say it to me, was in multiples 
of 10. This is important. Everything about a prophet is prophetic. So when you're reading a story, where they're from, the clothes that they wear, the things that they did, the things that they said, the environments that they find themselves in, there's a prophetic meaning in everything. Naaman comes to the prophet bringing multiples of 10. What does it mean? 10, prophetically, is the number of two things. It's the number of testing, and it's the number of infinity. It's an infinite multiplier. So Naaman brings 10 shekels of silver, 10 talents of silver, 10 big bars of silver. Silver, in the prophetic culture, and in the understanding of all throughout the New Testament, and the old, silver is, represents righteousness. So what, what Naaman is saying as he's coming to the Lord is, I know that you are infinitely righteous. Then he comes and he gives him 6,000 shekels of gold. 6,000 is a multiple of 10 times 6, three times. 10 times 6 is 60. 60 times 6 is 60 times 10 is 600. 600 times 10 is 6,000. Well, what does that mean? Gold means goodness. 10 is infinity, 6 is man, so it's 6 times 10, so he's giving him the number of man, he's giving him infinity, and he's giving him goodness. What is he saying? You are infinitely righteous, and you are infinitely good to man over and over and over again. Then he brings in 10 suits. Suits are changing of clothing in the Bible. I feel the glory on me. 10, ten suits in the Bible represent transformation. So he says to the Lord, you are the one who infinitely transforms. And you know what Jesus says? You're speaking my language. Miracles happen when you know who he is. If you understood who he is, you'd ask us. We told the widow, the woman at the well. And he's coming and naming an outsider, a wicked man, understands that this God is righteous. That this God will be good to man over and over and over again. And that this God and this God alone has the ability to transform. Did you know that? And honor, say with the honor, honor, creates access. So it wasn't just the amount of the gift that he was bringing, it was what he was saying by giving that gift. He was honoring God in his nature. He was honoring the nature of God, and when he did it, it opened up everything to him because he honored his nature, therefore he could access his nature. Next slide. He is righteous, he is willing, and he is able. So Naaman takes this offering, he rolls up, he's got his, you know, Cadillac Escalades, he's got his Hummers, he comes rolling into town, pulls up at the prophet's house, gets out, puts his sunglasses on, and stands in front of his car, and says, tell him I'm here. That's what he does. Elijah never goes to him. It's interesting. Elijah wouldn't get up and go to him. Why? Say with me. Elijah had issues. Say, Jesus didn't have the issue. But Elisha had the issue. Elisha didn't like him. Elisha didn't like the Syrian. He had a prejudice against him. He said, this guy's an oppressor of my people. This guy's enslaving my people. This guy's a murderer. This guy's all of these things. I don't want anything to do with him, but the Lord wants to do it, so I guess that's the way it's got to be. You ever read the first story of Jonah? Same story. Jonah had prejudices. Jesus didn't have the prejudice. Jonah had the prejudice. So Elisha wanted to get up and go see him. He sends his servant. He says, go tell him to wash in the Jordan. And here it tells us twice, Naaman became furious, and Naaman went into a rage. So two times it tells me what Naaman, it tells us what Naaman's attitude is. What's Naaman's problem? Naaman is used to get whatever he wants. Clearly money is not his problem. Clearly status is not his problem. And he said, I was expecting the Lord to come out, or I was expecting the prophet to come out, call on his God, wave his hand over me, and I would be clean. I was expecting some ceremony that was equal to my status. 
Doesn't he know who I am? I'm General So-and-so. Doesn't he know who I am? I'm Professor So-and-so. Doesn't he know who I am? I'm Doctor, Congressman, Senator So-and-so. I want something given to me that is equal to my status. And Elisha said, no, go wash in the river. Don't just wash in the river, wash in the Jordan River, which at this time was running low, so it was very muddy. So he's like, he wants me to go wash in that dirty river, and he went into a rage, and he left. Next slide. So what happens is, is the, is the uh, what happens is the his servants come to him and say, if he asked you to do something great, you would have done it. Now why don't you just go and do what this man asked you, because it's humble. Humble yourself and do what he asked. If he asked you to go take a city, go take a city. You would have done that, but he didn't ask you. He just told you to get, 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 go to the river. Naaman was used to getting his way. He was proud. He was selfish. He was impulsive. Everything had to filter through Naaman's flesh, or he didn't agree with it. That's why he's got leprosy. He has a disease of the flesh, because that's what he served. Everything filtered through what I think and what I feel. And if it doesn't line up with what I think and I feel, I don't want anything to do with it. He wanted to show Jesus gave him instruction. He requires humility and obedience. Now here we go, Christian. Naaman felt his ideas were superior to the Lord's. How many Christians feel that their ideas are superior to Jesus? The Lord says this to Nah. I got a better idea. Naaman said, there are three beautiful rivers back where I'm from. Back in Assyria, the there's beautiful rivers. Why does he want me to wash this mighty river? He doesn't know what he's talking about. I got a better idea than that. How many times does that happen? God gives you a lit word. God gives you an instruction. God tells you to do something. God's trying to lead your life, and you go, no, I got a better idea. And you wonder why you miss a miracle. And you wonder why you miss a breakthrough. And you wonder why you miss an opportunity. Because God says, do this, and we go, and we do our own thing. And a lot of times we can't see. Naaman couldn't connect. What does that muddy river have to do with my healing? That's what happens with us. God gives you a word that is completely unrelated to what you asked him. Or, in Naaman's case, God didn't meet his expectation, and he became offended. Come on, I want you to own this stuff. How many times does God not meet your expectation, and you get offended? How many times? How many times does God tell you, and you should be hearing him, and you should be following him? And if you're not hearing him, and you're not following, you need to back up to the last time that he talked to you. If you do not hear the Lord today, and you heard him before, and everything's crickets and silence for you, then it's because of a, a, a rebellion or a disobedience issue in your life. And that's not something, oh, I'm hanging out at the bar so that I must be disobedient. No, God has told you to do something, and you didn't do it. Therefore, there is no further instruction until you do what he told you to do. And now if you, it's amazing, if you go back to the word that he spoke to you, that you left by the wayside, and you go back to it, all of a sudden you realize that word's still there, but there's no other word. Well, why isn't there any other word? Because I'm saying, there will be no other word until I do this. There was no other word for Naaman until he dipped in the river. God didn't give him an explanation. He didn't tell him why. He didn't even try to reason with him. Come on, Naaman, just get in the water. Come on, you be good for you. Just do what I say. He didn't. He said, dip in the river. And he said, nah, I got better ideas. We do the same thing. We think our ideas are superior. We think we know more. We think we're superior. We think we got it all figured out. We miss what he's saying to us. Or we can't hear him because we have failed to obey at the basis because we can't connect. You're saying, Lord, I want this. And he tells you to do this. And you go, how does that have anything to do with this? And we stop and we move away. 
So we do. Because we want this, and he's telling us to do this, and we can't see the connection. He tells Naaman to dip in a river. Naaman doesn't see the connection. He says, forget this, I'm leaving. The servants tell him, we humble, he heals, he's healed, and he repents, and he repents. Last slide, next slide. He repents. He comes to Christ. Right? He returns to the man of God. Now Elijah comes out to meet him because he now is aligned himself with obedience. So Elijah is now going to talk to him. So Elijah comes out and starts talking to him. And he says, I want you to know that I worship no other God than the God of heaven. Your God is now my God. But I'm asking you something. I have to go to the temple of Rimon. And when I go into the temple of Rimon, because my king serves this God, I have to go there for ceremonial reasons. When I go there, I want you to know that I'm not bowing my heart to this God. I'm just there because I'm obliged to be there. Do I have to believe in the prophets and go in peace? A lot of you, you work in places that are not the most godly environments, just so you know. And a lot of Christians go, well, man, I don't know if I should quit or what should I do? This isn't really, you know, this isn't a spirit-filled environment. I don't feel like, you know, it's like, look, you're in these environments where God knows your heart. He knows you're not bowing your heart to Ramon, okay? He knows you're, you're there, but you're not there. You get what I'm saying? So, and I'll give you a better example. I was in Orlando this past week. I'm trying to organize some conference kind of thing with some people. Blah, 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 blah. But anyway, I meet this guy. He's a Pakistani pastor. His name's Rashid. Hopefully he's going to call him and bring him in. He's to talk to you. And Rashid was telling me, he's planted 20, he's, he's Pakistani. He's planted 20 churches. He's a Muslim. Come to Christ. He's planted 20 churches in Pakistan, 15 in Nepal, and now he's working in Dubai. Okay? The guy's all in. Right? And I'm like, how'd you get into Rashid? He goes, I just believe God for an airline ticket. He's like, I, need, I go, you're here. I go, you got a car? He goes, no. I go, you got a place to stay? He goes, no. We were some people that were helping you there at the table. He's like, I go, so you came here only with knowing this guy. And you you, you, you felt like God was going to do this. And you, you believe God for an airline ticket. You don't have a, don't have a place to stay. You don't have a car. And he's like, no. And I'm like, dude, you're brass. And I like your thing. And I'm like, I want to bring you to LA. And I want you, because he started sharing with me all these stories. He started telling me about blasphemy laws in Pakistan. He said, if you convert from Islam to Christianity in Pakistan, and you do so publicly, anybody can kill you. And there is no repercussions whatsoever. He was telling me, I have Christians and they're, that have been killed. People that have led to Christ, they make a public declaration and they're killed. And then he told me, he said, God is doing an amazing work in Pakistan. He said, outwardly, these people are Muslims. But he said, inwardly, there are many, many people that are becoming born again. And outwardly, they have to live as Muslims or Islam. They have to present themselves that way. But inwardly, they're born again. And he told me, God is doing this crazy work. And he's doing all of this kind of stuff behind the scenes. And this really work. He started talking to me about like, meeting with these crazy people. You go in the mountains and the fall. Just this wild stuff, man. All oh, in. He said, I went up to the altitude in the far reaches of Nepal, and I was up there so bad that my legs were shaking from lack of oxygen. He said, because I wanted to reach the people that were up there. Crazy. And we go, oh, well, I don't believe that someone should outwardly portray themselves as a Muslim when inwardly they're a Christian. I believe that all public witnesses should be, should be we should publicly testify of Jesus. Really? Does your boss know you're a believer? Does your neighbor know you're a believer? Do your family members and all of your friends know you're a born-again Christian? Do they? We take these pious attitudes and we judge somebody that's in that culture, that they're under the threat of death, that if they confess Christ publicly, they will be killed. Well, that should be martyr syndrome. They should be willing martyrs. Yeah, you first. You first. Put you on a first-class ticket to Pakistan, and we'll let Rashid walk you out of the street, and you confess Christ. 
And you see what happens. You think we're so, this is how pious and how religious our perspectives come, and we judge these people without knowing what's really going on. And we act so arrogant. We act so hard. They should be willing to die for the gospel. I'd be willing to die. Really, would you? Would you? It wouldn't just cost you your life, it would cost you the life of your family, because he says they go and find their family members, and they kill them too. He said once the person is killed, the family members go into hiding and they have to flee. Because they not only kill this guy, they go and find his wife, his mother, his children, and they're going to kill them too. So try that one on. So lest you judge these people too harshly, understand that they're coming to Christ in the darkest of places. Just like this guy. I have to go here. I have to present myself this way, but know in my heart that I'm not. And Elisha says, go in peace. Elisha didn't take the money. But this guy says, I want to take earth with me. He said, what you have done for me, I want to take with me. This is a principle of spirit. What God gives you, you carry. What you encounter, you carry. What you've experienced, it's now yours by possession. Where God has brought you in breakthrough is now your occupied territory. The only way you lose it is if you step out of it. If God has broken you through financially, go back to that place and believe God from that place and you'll see that it's yours. You carry what you encounter. You carry what's been given to you. For people here, we've I've used cancer a few times, but we pray for people, all kinds of different people. People say, I have cancer, I usually find two or three people in the room that have healed cancer. And we have them. Right, Mina? My wife too. Healed cancer. Without therapy, without anything, healed. And I bring them and I say, listen, I want you to pray with me for this person who has X, who has cancer. Why? I said, what do you want to do? I want you to release what God, what God did to you, whether by faith, healing, or remembrance, I want you to release it to this person. Why? Because they carry what they've encountered. We are fragranced by them. When he releases something or does something in your life, it's yours forever. It is a territory that's been given to you. He's not an Indian giver. He doesn't take it back. You understand that? It's yours. I'll tell you my story. I was like having all these kind of crazy financial problems a few years back. And I'm like, oh, you know. And me, I'm like, you know, being an infant, like we all are, being a baby, that's why we talk about being babies, I'm a baby, right? But anyway, I would go to the Lord and I go, Lord, this is my problem, this is what happened. And the Lord would say to me, and after I got all my, all my problems out, he'd say, Kevin, haven't I broken you through financially before? Yeah. And I felt like the Lord was showing me, go to that place. And I would go to that place in the spirit or in the place of remembrance or even in that place of position within my heart. And I would remember what the Lord would do for me. And I would stand there and I'd say, what do you want me to do, Lord? What is your call? And he would begin, you know what he gives you? He asks God, I tell people this all the time, he asks God for financial blessing, he gives you opportunity, and he gives you idea. He doesn't give you a Reader's Digest check. So I'm standing in this place and I'm believing God, and he begins to show me ideas, he begins to show me concepts, he begins to give me opportunities that will bring me from where I am to where I need to be. And I could have said, oh, no, I want a Reader's Digest check with balloons. Jesus put some checks in the mailbox. It doesn't work like that. So whatever God has done in your life, he will do it again and again and again and again. And it's yours by inheritance. And it's not a question. I'll break it down right here. Gehazi. Gehazi went back to the king and he said, my servant has been too easy on Naaman. Or my, my master has been too easy on Naaman. I'm going to make Naaman pay. So Gehazi, who's the servant of Elisha, goes and says, hey, I need some money. They need some clothes, he lies. We have two prophets that showed up, and man, these guys are doing 
really bad, so we need some money for that. We need to change your clothes. And David goes, oh, by all means, take it. And he runs away, he goes and puts it in his house. And then Elisha said, where have you been? And then David goes, nowhere. And so he lies again. And Elisha says to him, has not my spirit, did not my spirit go with you? Don't I know what you've done? You've taken this stuff. And he says, it's not the time for us to take this money. The reason is, is that God is trying to do something in Naaman's life. This isn't a time for our honor. The time for our honor will come. But right now, God is trying to reach this man. And so Gehazi gets struck with leprosy. Gehazi, if you were here last week, he was around Elisha. Classic example of Christians being in an environment of glory but being unaffected. Gehazi walked with Elisha, but he couldn't manifest power. Elisha gave him the staff of authority and sent him on an assignment after having walked with him for so long that he could do nothing with it. And in fact, if you read the story, Gehazi was indifferent to it. The glory, in the presence of the glory, yet unaffected. In the atmosphere where the Spirit of God is being released and things are going on, yet unaffected. And here we have Gehazi who just couldn't get past himself again and he wanted something he wanted but was not his. He lived a life of greed and deception and it led to a curse. So here's what I want to take away with you. I'm going to pray. Say this with me. Miracles require honor and humility. Say this with me. Jesus will be merciful to all. Say this. I will not be Gehazi. Greed and deception will not leave my life. Say this. I am willing to deal with my generational junk. Gehazi sins against the Lord and he inherits a curse upon him and his generation. Can the curse be broken? Sure, but that's what ended up happening last slide. So we're going to pray. But you guys are pray with me. Right? So we're just going to interact with as much time as we want. I know it's going to be long. Just put a lot of information. Did you guys get something out of this? I want you guys to pray this prayer with me and stand to your feet. Say, what are we going to pray? It's all first service. Take the red pill. Let's go down the rabbit hole. Let's believe God. So I want you to say this. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you and I ask for forgiveness for every time I have acted superior to your instructions. Every time I have refused. No, you don't know. You're doing as a huge favor doing that. I stop with your word, your spirit, or your ways. I renounce the spirit of I will not be worldly. I will be spiritual. I will receive from and learn from the atmosphere that you place me in. Here we go. I renounce greed and deception over my life. I will be generous towards your house, towards your people, and towards your ways. Watch this one. I will not, I will not define, define what generosity is. Generosity. I will allow you allow to you. tell me tell what me. generosity is. I believe in miracles. I activate miracles over and through my life. I will do whatever it takes to release the glory in my life and in the lives of others. I open my life to you, Holy Spirit. Teach me to hear, to see, to feel as you do, so that I may learn to follow you more. In Jesus' name. Amen.